once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. We all want to be righteous, but our calling is not just to be righteous, but to do righteousness. Lead teacher Jeff Norris finishes the series Imago Dei with the last part of this sermon entitled Image Bearing and Our Neighbor, Becoming a People of Righteousness, which covers Ephesians chapter 4 verses 22 to 24 and Acts chapter 10 verses 34 and 35. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Let me pray. We'll jump into where we're headed this week in this series of Mago Day. Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather together again as your people in the various ways that looks for us this morning. We are just grateful. We're grateful to be in your presence. We're We're grateful to be opening your word, and Lord, we ask and pray that you would bless the reading and the teaching of your word. Lord, would you give me, uh, through your spirit, uh, give me the words. May I just simply be uh, your vessel that brings you glory. And and Lord, as as we consider these things this morning that you've laid out for us, would you soften our hearts to be receptive to your truth? Would you indeed give us ears to hear? Would you give us eyes to see? And would you do what only you can do in us and through us? And would you do it for your glory? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you, if you weren't with us last week, and again, I know that we have many guests that uh, perhaps are jumping in at the very end of this series. And, and let me just very briefly recap where we've been even just this past week. Now, in the series as a whole, there's too much to cover. Uh, we post all of the sermons on our website and, and uh, our various outlets that we also do our podcast. So please go fill in, uh, fill in the gaps there. But last week, uh, we've been talking about what does it look like uh, to image God in his character. And last week, I, I brought up this important aspect of imaging God as it pertains to his righteousness, that we image him in his righteousness. Now, we certainly image him in every aspect of his character. That's how we were originally created, is to be a people who, uh, undefiled and uncorrupted by sin, that we would image God in every way, and that's what we did originally. And then sin came into the world, as as accounted for us in Genesis chapter 3, and one of the things that we talked about last week is that although we were imaging God in his righteousness, uh, we now no longer are able to do that fully and completely. In a very marred way, we still bear the image of God, but we are now what, is, what the Bible terms as unrighteous. We are not a righteous people left unto ourselves. We talked about what does it mean to be righteous. It, it, God being righteous, and he's defined as the righteous one throughout Scripture, We tried to boil it down just simply to say this. God being righteous means that he always does what is right. He is always right and he always does right. And secondly, his judgments are always just. So he is always right and his judgments are always just. And so where we were last week is we were talking about, okay, if we are now a people who, in, who are inherently unrighteous because of our sin nature, then is there hope for us to ever be righteous again? And that's where we camped out last week. That not only is there hope, there's great uh, opportunity for us through the finished work of Christ to be made righteous again. 
And it's only through his work. And when we believe upon Jesus, what God does is he declares us to be righteous. It's a declarative righteousness. Another word that we mentioned briefly was imputed. Imputed righteousness. In other words, that the righteousness of Jesus is now laid upon us declared to be true of us as if it were our own. So even though we are an unrighteous people, through the finished work of Jesus in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, through faith in him and only through faith in him, we are declared righteous. So with that, let me give you this verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is a, a verse that is a great summation of all that we talked about last week. For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, that's Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. That's not a might like, oh, it might happen. That is, that's a word that is saying what God is saying is he's saying when we believe upon Christ, when we have received the Holy Spirit and have received the righteousness of Christ, it is sure. The might is not on will he do it or not. The might is on whether we believe in Jesus or not. So God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So here's where we're headed this week. Last week we're speaking of an internal reality that if we are a people who have indeed been declared righteous through the finished work of Christ, that that's what's true of us now internally in our experience. Now what is true of us externally, outwardly, as we demonstrate that righteousness? So we're declared righteous. What does it look like to demonstrate that righteousness? Another way we could say it perhaps is, what does it look like to practice righteousness? Listen to this verse from, uh, from 1 John 3.10. It says this, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not, here's that word, practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. One of the things that we're going to see in this sermon this morning, as we open and look at a lot of, of God's word, is that God has a great deal to say about practicing righteousness. He has a great deal to say about what it looks for him to be the God of righteousness and therefore what it looks like for his people who image him to be those who practice righteousness, who demonstrate righteousness, who aren't just those who say, well, I'm righteous, but in the way that we live out, there is a newness among us in how the righteousness of God is demonstrated that is unique and contrary to the world around us. When we speak about righteousness of God and our imaging him in his righteousness, uh, we, we also have to talk about justice. I don't know if you remember last week, I gave a definition of righteousness uh, from several different theologians. And one of the things that they uh, talked about in this robust definition of righteousness is that it's almost always translated in the scriptures, both in the Hebrew and in the Greek, uh, in one of two ways. From the same word, it's either always uh, translated as right or righteous or righteousness, or is just, justified, justification, or justice. 
The same root words, right and just, are tied to the same Greek and Hebrew words. So here's the point. What you're going to see in Scripture is that when God talks about his righteousness and the righteousness of his people lived out, almost always it's coupled with justice. It's, it's, it's woven together like this. When we speak of righteousness, we have to also speak of the justice of God. And we can't separate the two because God doesn't separate the two. He keeps them together, woven together. Now, you hear that, and I would suspect and assume that many of you are getting a bit nervous because I'm mentioning this word justice because our culture sure has a lot to say about justice these days. Everything is about justice and injustice. And, and there's a part of what we are trying to compute and register and process and, and take in with all that we're hearing is what is it that we are to believe about justice? What is it that we're to, to, to sink our feet into and say, okay, well, this is what righteousness and justice is biblically. But I'll admit to you, it's been very confusing. And it's, it's been a cause for a lot of argument a lot of disdain, a lot of labeling, and a lot of dismissing based on how we talk about this very subject. Tim Keller says it well. He says this, in the Bible, Christians have an ancient, rich, strong, comprehensive, complex, and attractive understanding of justice. Biblical justice differs in significant ways from all the secular alternatives without ignoring the concerns of any of them. Yet Christians know little about biblical justice, despite its prominence in the scriptures. This ignorance is having two effects. First, large swaths of the church still do not see, quote, doing justice as part of their calling as individual believers. Second, many younger Christians, recognizing this failure of the church and wanting to rectify things, are taking up one or another of the secular approaches to justice, which introduces distortions into their practice and lives. In other words, we're really confused on this issue of righteousness and justice. What does it look like to live out righteousness and justice as the people of God, who image of God, who is righteous and just? You know, if I did a, if I did a, um, a little bit of an exercise with you guys and I walked up to you and I said, hey, I'd like for you to fill in the blank for me. If, if I were to ask you the question, let's pretend for a moment that you don't know the scriptures that give a hint to the answer of this, but you just, you just are going to guess. And I said, okay, uh, God sits on his throne and he actually defines for us in Scripture what is the foundation of his throne. What is it that he sits upon? And he gives us two things. He says, there's two things that my throne sits upon as the foundation of my reign and my rule. What would be those two things? Now, I certainly would be, if I didn't know what the Bible says, I would certainly be prone to say, well, it's probably it's got to be like love and mercy or compassion and grace, maybe perhaps kindness and, and goodness. But Psalm 89 and Psalm 97 both tell us that righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. 
That's the very thing that God says, this is the foundation of my rule and my reign. So what are we to do with that? Well, first, let me propose this to you. Um, we, I don't think we can really understand what God is getting at when he talks about righteousness and the outplaying of righteousness in the life of a follower of God, of Christ, unless we have first an understanding of the biblical word and term of shalom. Now, shalom is, is the word that in the Hebrew uh, Old Testament that we almost always, if not always, translate peace. And, and that's not a bad translation. It's certainly a, a good translation because it's a part of what that word means. But uh, one of the things that's hard about the English language is we don't have the depth oftentimes, oftentimes in one word to get at what the Hebrew and even the Greek is getting at in one word. And so our definitions, our translations sometimes uh, end up hitting a little bit soft and not fully getting at what the biblical writers and what God is getting at when he gives us these terms. And so shalom isn't just peace. A picture would be this. Maybe a mental image that you can have is think about a beautifully woven together piece of fabric that each thread within the, pa- uh, within the fabric is a pattern that creates something beautiful and it's so tightly woven together over and under and through and around and every piece of thread is purposeful and meaningful. And when you look at the whole piece, it's, it's captivating. It's beautiful. That's the picture I want you to get in your mind of what God originally created, creation and us, his image bears to be, that we would be a people who have that beautiful tapestry within us as those made in his image where everything is purposeful, everything is knit together, everything is webbed together in a beautiful tapestry that is glorious in every way in the image of its creator. And all of creation itself is woven together in that way. But when sin came into the world, the threads began to fall apart and things began to come undone in us and around us. That's unrighteousness. Righteousness is the beautiful threading together a fabric in a way that creates a beautiful picture. Unrighteousness is the falling apart of those things to where threads are laying separate from one another and nothing is brought together in the way that it was originally designed to be. Uh, maybe this will make sense. Cornelius Plantiga Jr., he says this. He says, the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets called shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Do you remember last week, one of the definitions I gave you of righteousness is defined in the biblical dictionary. One of the definitions I gave you is that when we speak of righteousness, we're we're speaking of that inward righteousness is, is man and woman becoming what we ought to be again. Because sin gave us unrighteousness, the unraveling. What is God doing? God, through Jesus, is putting it all back together. 
bringing shalom back into our lives, making us as we ought to be. So that's inward declared righteousness. Now the same is true of outward demonstrative righteousness to where what he's doing around us and through us is he's putting the pieces back together. That's righteousness and justice. He's creating again the beautiful tapestry of what he originally created to be. And he's doing it through his people. He's doing it through you and me, which is unbelievable. So when 2 Corinthians 5 says that he's entrusted to us the message of reconciliation, that's part of what he's talking about. That certainly we would be those who proclaim what Christ has done for us in his death and his life, death and resurrection to be true in us, but then through us to bring his restoring redemptive righteousness back to bear in this beautiful thing called shalom. You ever wonder why if God... If the whole point of Christianity is just to get saved and, and escape hell and go to heaven, why doesn't God just take us as soon as we believe upon him? This is why. Because he has a bigger plan for us once we have come to know him. He's doing a restorative work to reestablish once again righteousness in the world around us. Through those he has declared righteous. So how does shalom come? How does it come to be? How do we begin to see this flourishing? And that's the word we use here in the church. We, we talk about kingdom flourishing. That's the word that most gets at that word shalom. How do we get this flourishing? Well, listen to this from Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 says this. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. How does shalom come? It comes through people knowing their God intimately and knowing that he is the God who out of him flows just like a spring coming out of the ground. What is natural to who God is is steadfast love, righteousness, and justice. It's in those things that he delights. And we as a people, we know him, not just know about him, but we know him. We know him intimately. J.I. Packer, in his book, um, Concise Theology, in his chapter about knowing God, he put that verse, he put Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 at the top of the chapter to basically say, this is what it looks like to know God. And so as a result of that, what are we to be? We're to be a people, as Ephesians 4, 22 through 24 say. Look at this. It says, there we go. That was perfect timing. Do you see that? To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God. Here it is, in the righteousness, in true righteousness and holiness. We're putting off the old self of unrighteousness. We're putting on the new self that is in the likeness of God. And what is that exactly? It's in his righteousness. It's in his holiness. Romans 6 tells us, what are we to do? We are to be a people who no longer offer ourselves as instruments of unrighteousness, which is true to our nature. But now that we're in Christ, we now offer ourselves as instruments of righteousness. To be people who live out 
this very righteousness of the character of God. So here's, here's where I want to try to anchor us this morning. To grow, as, as, as Ephesians 4 just told us, to grow in the likeness of God in his righteousness and holiness. To grow in his likeness. What does that really mean? I'm going to propose to you that in, in, in a significant sense, to grow in his likeness, in his righteousness, is to grow in caring. Listen to this. Don't miss this. To grow in caring about what he cares about. That we care about what he cares about. It also means that we increasingly devote ourselves to doing what is right. That's righteousness. Remember the definition of who God is in his righteousness? He's the one who always does right. Who are his people to be? We are to be a people, although we can't do this in our fallen bodies perfectly. But we are to people, be a people who are continually growing in his likeness, meaning that we are growing in our devotion to doing what is right. Now listen to this. I had not picked up on this verse before. Acts 10, 34 and 35, this is when Peter is it's beginning to click for him. It's starting to, the light bulb is coming on because of what God had given him in a vision that, that his message of reconciliation of Jesus is not just for the Jew, but for the Gentile as well. And so in Acts chapter 10, he's getting this. He's been in the home of Cornelius and he's presented the gospel. And he says this, I find this so interesting. He says, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, Anyone who fears him, and listen, and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now, don't hear a works-based salvation. That's not what Peter's saying here. It's not, hey, just do right and God will accept you. He's saying, no, for those who have been accepted by the righteousness of Christ declared over us, we are becoming a people more and more who in every situation, in every circumstance, just like our God, we do what is right. We care about what he cares about. So, all that to say, when we look in the Word of God, from Genesis to Revelation, what do we see God caring about? When he speaks most often about his righteousness, what is in the context of what he's talking about? Let me give you four things briefly. To image God in his righteousness means that we care, that we do what is right in caring for the poor. There are more times than you and I could count, I mean, we could do it if we took the time, that when God speaks of a people being righteous in his image, it's in the context of caring for the poor. Time and time and time again. And certainly I can't list all of those passages. I want to read just a couple of them to you now. And I'm just going to read them without very much commentary because I want God's word to speak for us. Proverbs 29.7 says, The righteous know the rights of the poor. The wicked do not understand such knowledge. Just quick comment. That word know there is the same word that God uses throughout Scripture to, uh, when it talks of a man knowing his wife. So it's not just knowledge. It's an intimate understanding. It's an intimate, deep care. We know the rights. The righteous know the rights of the poor. We know deeply those things. Look at Jeremiah 22, 15 and 16. This is, this is, uh, this is Jeremiah speaking. 
to a king of Judah who has not been acting righteously. He says, do you think you're a king because you compete in cedar? In other words, because you're rich? Do you, uh, did not your father, his father's Josiah, who was a good king, a righteous king, did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? He judged the cause of the poor and the needy, and then it was well. Is not this, here it is again, is, this, is not this what it is to know me? This is what it is to know me, to eat and drink justice and righteousness. Listen to the words of Jesus. Do you ever consider, you ever read through the Gospels and you come, along, uh, uh, come across something that Jesus said and you go, uh, yeah, I'm just going to keep reading because that was weird. And that was, that, was, that was just hard. I don't know what to do with that. Jesus said a lot of things that cause us to pause. This is one of them. Luke 14, 12 through 14, he says this. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, Jesus is certainly not saying, hey, don't hang out with your friends. But he's pushing us in a direction that we don't want to go, natural unto ourselves. Who are we inviting into our homes? Who are we pursuing? Are we mindful, caring, and doing what is right for the poor? Secondly, we do what is right in caring for the marginalized, those who have been pushed to the edges of society. Proverbs 31, 8 and 9 says, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Jesus, think about all the times that Jesus engaged with the marginalized, the people that the culture of that day had pressed to the edges and said, you don't matter. Think about the woman at the well in John 4, a woman who was so ashamed of her sin and so uh, ostracized by society that she had to fetch water in the middle of the day and couldn't go with the, the other women in the evening, in the, the cool of the evening in the morning. The woman who everyone had put to the side because she had been married five times and was now living with someone who was not her husband. Think about the woman who had an issue of blood that no one would get around, that would no, no one would touch, but she came to Jesus and Jesus said, be healed. Think about the, the lady in Luke 7, the woman in Luke 7 who was presumably a, a prostitute, a sinful woman who came and, and, and with her tears wet his feet and she's in the, in the house of this self-righteous uh, a Pharisee named Simon and he's judging her and Jesus is not judging her, but he's anointing her and he's loving her because she is one who has been marginalized, but not in the presence of Jesus. Think about the lepers who came to Jesus and that Jesus went to the ones in which society would put at the very edges of town because they were so unclean and Jesus moves towards them and he cleans them. This is the heart of Jesus. I love the way Bob Goff says this, although it pierces me to the core. He says, Jesus spent his whole life engaging the people most of us have spent our whole lives trying to avoid. We do what is right in caring for the marginalized. We do what is right in caring for the oppressed. Hold up. 
Some of you see that word and immediately cultural narratives come into your mind. I'm not speaking about that. Sadly, through cultural Marxism as displayed most prominently through this thing called intersectionality, this word has been hijacked from the Bible. The words of power and oppression are biblical words that have been used now by academic ideologies to, by the enemy himself to pull us into this, this rhythm of thinking that these are things that we shouldn't talk about. But the Bible talks about them all the time. And almost always in the context of righteousness and justice. Psalm 9, 7 through 10 says, The Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. What did Jesus say about this? Luke chapter 4 gives us an account of when Jesus walks into the temple into the synagogue of, of Nazareth, his hometown. And he's got one passage of scripture that he wants to read to this people that says to these people, this is why I'm here. This is why the Messiah has come. You know what he reads? He reads from Isaiah 61. And he opens the scroll and he says this. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. This is what it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty, liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now our temptation is to make this entirely spiritual analogy. To say, well, yeah, he's talking about the captives to sin, the oppressed to the, the, the spirits of darkness. It's all just a spiritual thing that he's speaking to here. That's fine and good until you look at the context of Isaiah 61 of what he's quoting. And it's talking about literal physical oppression. It's talking about real prison. It's talking about real blindness. Of course, Jesus is about spiritual renewal and righteousness, but he's also about the physical as well. It's a wholeness, it's a completeness, it's a shalom, it's a putting back together, not just the spiritual brokenness within us, but the spiritual and physical and emotional and relational unrighteousness that has fallen apart all around us. And the only hope for that fabric to be woven back together is Jesus and his kingdom of righteousness. That's the hope that only we can give to the world. Lastly, and bear with me, I know I'm going way over, but I think this is of such most importance, significant importance. We do what is right in caring for the lost. Jesus said very plainly and succinctly, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. But I want you to ask the question, how did he do that? How did he come to seek and to save the lost? Certainly, absolutely, he came proclaiming the good news of himself. That there is spiritual renewal. That was what the whole sermon last week was about. A righteousness inwardly that we can now have through his finished work. But when you look at Jesus and you see how did he pursue the lost, 
He did it through being a vessel of righteousness to their very need. Physical, emotional, relational. He cared for them as he proclaimed who he is. Jesus said it this way. This is the best way to sum up this sermon. In Matthew chapter 25, he said this. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous, now that's referring to the self-righteous, the Pharisees and others, other religious righteous, will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now the rest of Matthew chapter 25 talks about how he then puts it in the negative. And he says to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And they will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry? When did we see these things? And he says to them in response, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous, the righteous into eternal life. Something's been troubling my soul lately. And it's this, what I'm seeing in the church far too often What I'm seeing in the church is that we tend to give into the temptation, and I'm included in this. Please don't hear me saying you, I'm saying we. We give into the temptation that we want to export our righteousness for someone else to do for us. We want our demonstrated righteousness to be that someone else does it for us so that we don't have to. Can I just be really blunt with you for just a moment? We want our vote for a politician to be the one who represents our righteousness. That they, that they will display righteousness for us and take care of the poor and of the marginalized and the oppressed. Show me in the Bible where you see that. Politics are fine, they're good. But church, we have fallen prey to the temptation that we are so sucked up into this political conversation that we forget that we, we through Jesus in us are the ones to be righteous, to be just, to care about what God cares about, to move towards those that are poor and needy and marginalized and oppressed and lost. That's the responsibility of the church. It's 
what we have to be because Christ is in us. His righteousness is in us. And we can't be content with just saying, I've been declared righteous and not demonstrate it in the ways that God has called us to demonstrate it. I love the way that our very own Jack Alexander, member, longtime member of the church, how he said it. The gospel that while uncompromising and lifting up Christ and his word, life, death, resurrection, and ascension also radically moves horizontally to the love of our neighbors. May that be true of us. Father, please, may that be true of us. May we be a people because you have declared us righteous, not by anything that we have done, but only because of the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. May we be a people who display the very righteousness of Christ to every corner and crevice and nook and cranny of this world. May we be agents of your shalom, your flourishing, that you may be glorified. Would you do it, O oh Father? Would you do what only you can do in and through us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing together. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.